Hey everybody, this is James Kent from Dose Nation. Welcome to episode 19. It's an interview with Nathan Messier from Dance Safe. I think you will enjoy it. Nathan's been around Seattle for many years. I've known him for at least 15 years now. And he's a great guy, uh, an activist, a socialite. Um, he's uh, recently a father, and uh, he's, you know, he's been around, he's seen it and done it all. And as a member of Dance Safe, he's been in the harm reduction community for a couple decades now and doing really great work helping to educate people about how to be safe in a club environment, especially when there's uh, strange drugs and pills and white powders floating around. And it was uh, after our interview, Nathan and I spent a few minutes talking about peer education networks and how when he goes to these peer education meetings now, he is the old guy in the room. He is uh, 40, I believe, or pushing 40, and he's no longer a young club kid uh, like I'm sure uh, some of you were back in the day, or maybe some of you are now. So if you're in that young demographic of of kids or young young adults who have just gotten into the scene and you're looking for a peer group to help you find your way through it, you can always contact DanceSafe at DanceSafe.org and they will hook you up with friendly people who know what's going on and know how to spot dangerous drugs and know how to find your way out of bad situations if you get into them in a club environment or a party environment. It's all been done before. Every generation that discovers psychedelics thinks that they're discovering it for the first time, but really there's been a long history of people experimenting with these substances, and it's all been done, and it's all, it's you know, even though there's new stuff out there. So yes, Dance Safe is a great resource for young people who are interested in not only cultivating the scene, but help, helping to make the scene safer for everybody involved. So if you are out there in the scene and you want to know where you can go to find more information or a peer group that can help you through uh, dangerous situations, you can always check out dancesafe.org and they will forward you to the right people. And finally, I'd like to thank our loyal listeners for listening to the show every week, subscribing to the show, downloading the show, looking forward to the show, telling your friends about the show, and if you would like to support the show and see it continue on, you can go to the Dose Nation homepage, and there's a bunch of links at the top where you can click through to donate through PayPal or shop on Amazon, and we always appreciate that. We're not doing this for the money, but if we make a little bit of money, then it makes it worth our time, and we always enjoy it when you like our Facebook page. That helps us know that we're getting new listeners and new followers and people who are tuning in. And that's always a treat when we come to the Facebook page and see new likes every day. So tell a friend, pass it along. Also, if you're a musician or an artist and uh, you would like to have your music featured on Dose Nation or you would like us to feature some of your artwork on our Facebook page and maybe do an interview on our podcast, please contact us at contact at dosenation.com. We'd love to get you on the show and talk a little bit about your art and what you're doing. Uh, we can only do science for so long before it starts to get boring and we cover the same topics, whereas... Art is continuously inventive and fun and ingenious, and we love to follow the music scene and the visual art scene, and especially what's going on in animation and film. So all of that stuff relates to psychedelics and perception and the way humans perceive reality, and art is really one of the greatest expressions of human emotion that can be shared between people. 
So any artists out there who want to connect, maybe publicize your work a little bit, we could play some music or share some of your art with the world, that would be great. Let us know, and we can tune people on to what you're doing. And now, without any further ado, let's get to our interview with Nathan Messier from Dance Safe. Have a good week, everyone. West studio in Seattle, which is also known as my basement, and I am talking to Nathan Messier from Dance Safe. Hello, Nathan. Uh, Nathan Messier from Dance Safe. I, um, hi, how's it going? What's your official title with Dance Safe? I'm currently the a project manager. A project manager, and how long have you been working with Dance Safe? I started um, as a founding member of the Seattle chapter, which is the first chapter outside of the Bay Area back in '99. And for people who don't know, can you tell us briefly what DanceSafe is and what they do? Um, we are a grassroots harm reduction organization that came out of the rave scene um, at you know 99, uh, 2000. And we um, provide basic drug use information to relatively naive drug users who might be encountering these drugs for the first time through this scene. And I don't use the word naive in a pejorative sense, but in the just they're new to this information sense. And it's um, uh, the way I describe it to most people who've never heard of it before is I just kind of use the two word buzzwords harm reduction. Right. They're basically going into the street level clubs, parties, dance raves, scenes, distributing information, testing kits, so people can use drugs in a in a safer environment. Correct. Where you're reducing the harms associated with drug use. We have we have several projects. Um the um first one is we distribute four by six inch club cards that have a big flashy graphic on one side that has the name of the drug. And on the other side has that basic information about what it is, where it came from, what the dose is, how long it lasts what the bad side effects are, why people use it, um, you know, things to be careful of, as in as short and sweet as sound bites as we can. So you're it. talking about like designer drug trading cards. <clears throat> sort of. I mean, <laughs> the designer drugs are, well, quote unquote, designer drugs are difficult because there's so many of them. Right. Um, we have 16 cards ranging from DMT, which is our newest one, to LSD, MDMA. We have a 2CB card, uh, mushrooms, Marijuana, cocaine, speed, GHB, etc. And um, the other thing I associate dance safe with is purity testing kits. I wouldn't say purity, but yeah, testing kits. Um, similar to what law enforcement uses. It's the same mandolin, Mechie, Marquis, uh, Simons, reagents that law enforcement No, uses. I don't know what any of that meant, means. Okay. But it's, so, uh, it's, a, it's a chemical test that turns something blue or a certain color. Right, right. So... Um, if you, you take a scraping or a small sample of a powder and apply a drop of this chemical reagent to it, and it'll change color. Um, and if it changes color in um, particular ways, we have a rough idea of what is in that sample. And knowing um, doing that with multiple types of reagents, we can get a rough idea of what is in the sample. Um, and then knowing the market 
of illegal drugs via the ecstasy data project, we can get a rough idea of what's in it just because we know what's in the market. Is DanSafe associated with the ecstasy data project? Um, affiliated. So real quick history of that. Um, that was um, started back, there was an initial project uh, when ecstasy.org was around. Um, and they did a about a year's worth of this. Where they and had, I just want to preface this by saying the ecstasy data project um, basically captures photos and lab analysis of pills that are currently on the street, basically keeping a history of drugs out there and what's in them uh, so that you can go look at your pill, try to find your match on the in the ecstasy database, and you can actually see if it's pure ecstasy or if it's ketamine or caffeine or whatever it is. It, it, right, um, and the there's one lab in Sacramento that has a license from the DEA to take anonymous samples uh, and through the mail, test them, and then post the results anonymously online. And um, there was an initial project uh, when ecstasy.org was around. DanSafe picked it up in 98-99, and we had a very nice funder, Bob Wallace. Oh, right, yes. Uh, big big ups to Bob Wallace, and unfortunately no longer with us, but uh, was a very uh, proud and, uh, I would say, aggressive sponsor of psychedelic causes while yeah. he was still alive. So he funded the first several years of the project uh, on his own, which was amazing. Um, it cost about $120 a test. And um, so wow. Um, uh, after our initial burst onto the scene, we lost a lot of funding, and uh, and Bob Wallace died. So XTC data was um, that 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 lab testing project was was at risk. So Arrowhead took it over for us, and they do all of the administrative work and and really run it. We contribute several thousand dollars a year. Um, we have a monthly donation to them to keep that project running. And then we um, are able to use that information in our own work because we can say, well, we know that most pills that have MDMA in them don't have something else. Or if they do, we know what those things are. We know what the adulterants are on the scene. Um, and uh, with the advent of, you know, the Molly phenomenon, mm -hmm. um, where everybody's using powdered MDMA now instead of pressed pills, for more or less, um, it's less useful because you don't have the markings on the pill to be able to differentiate. And so we charge those anonymous donors of those samples the full cost because strange white powder from Albuquerque doesn't tell you really anything about where <laughs> it came from. Um, but it's still useful to know... Um, it still gets out into the scene that, you know, this powder that I sent in that was supposed to be MDMA contained methylone. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, I'm guessing there's a, there's a, there's an influx of strange white powders recently that people want to get <clears throat> tested. Totally. Um, because there's just a, a wider distribution of, uh, of molecules out there. Uh, Jake, we had Dave Nichols on the show a few weeks ago, and uh, yeah, he was talking about uh, some of the designer molecules. What was the ones that he was talking about? Um, the Enbome chemicals, I think, is one of the ones that we had touched on. Right, the 25i, um, definitely. Yeah, it was, was uh, 6APB. Yeah, so, six, well, well, 6APB was... Um, was was one that we had talked about prior to that when we had gotten the requests in from that research com or company or whatever it was called. He did say, and Dave Nichols did say in that interview that um, 6-APB and 5-APB were ones that they had come up with. I'm guessing 6-APB must show up a lot now since it's very similar to MDMA, <clears throat> and I don't even know if first-time users could even tell the difference. We could bring up ecstasy data. It doesn't. It doesn't show up at all. I haven't. Well, I, I don't say at all, but I... Um, I 
keep an eye on on it, and I haven't seen... So what are the most common adulterants that show up there? Methylone, uh, which is the beta-ketone MDMA. And that's um, that's a cathinone derivative, which comes from cat, well, right? Well, uh, BKMDMA was actually patented by Shulgin and Nichols. Oh, okay. Uh, back in '98 or something like that, um, they thought that it would be a milder form of MDMA that would be good for therapy. Mm. Uh, and um, there are the cathinone class. Um, so yeah, cathinone is the active sort of stimulant in cot. Right. Um, and just like people have done with amphetamine, where they said, well, what happens if we add a methyl group? What happens if we add methylene dioxide? Okay, you know, what happens if we change it around? They did the same thing with, they did the same thing with cathinone. Right. And, um. Now we have tons of cathinone derivatives. I right. Mean, and there's some. You go to Wikipedia and you look at the cathinone derivatives and it's a list of like maybe 50, 50 things. I, I would, I, I've seen, um, people have taken the basic structure and then said, Here's the areas you can change. Um, you know, you can change R1, and you can change it to R2, and you can change it to R3, and you could add, you know, any number of things at those positions. Um, and I've seen lists, I would say, closer to 100 of possibilities. Oh, closer to 100? Of possibilities. Oh, okay. Um, there, anyway, there are, there are a ton. I'll just say they're all a lot. <laughs> uh, and these are all speed with, I mean, they're basically speed with slightly intactogenic or entheogenic effects. Right. But not fully hallucinatory and not like knock you out hallucinogenic. Right, right. Um, so those have hit the market since probably 2009, 2010. Um, and have just, um, the strange white powder that you get at a festival um, is very likely to contain one of one or more of these, and that's typically what bath salts are too. The bath salts phenomena is um, is crazy because, <laughs> so, I mean, as we all know, I mean, we've been buying, you know, we in the drug culture have been buying research chemicals and and some of the rarer things from PCOL and TCOL, um online from dodgy dealers for a long time, right? Um, if we all remember Pond Man, and there were tons of others. And they sold it at, they sold these chemicals as plant fertilizer or tank cleaner or tank, know, tank cleaner, disc cleaner, any number of things. It doesn't matter. It, it didn't matter so much what they were selling it as is that they would provide it in a store that sold a whole bunch of other unrelated things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way you, it would be impossible to tell that they were selling this for human consumption. And right. that's the big crux and of the And you would matter. actually have to know the chemical name to find it and know right. what you were looking for. Right. And then the word spread among the same. Um, and the whole, the whole crux of the matter is around for human consumption. Right. And the analog drug bills and the, the Controlled Substances Act, all of these focus around selling something for human consumption. And so if you sold them as research chemicals, these are for research purposes only, not for human consumption. If you look on the forum, various forums online, People say, I gave this to my cat, I gave this to my plant, I gave this to <laughs> anything to say that I didn't take it myself. And um, I didn't know humans have taken this, just to try to go along with that whole ruse of it being not for human consumption. Um, and so when they were selling these things as bath salts, that was just another way to sell this stuff as clearly it's not for human consumption, you're supposed to put it in your bath. Uh, but something about the whole bath salts thing caught the media or caught public attention. Right, because it mean, sounds it ridiculous. Plant fertilizer. I mean, the right, whole or room deodorizer or incense right. or any of those things. <laughs> uh, and and it's really funny because bath salts are a thing that people like kind of know about as a powder that you might have in your bathroom. 
Um, and so when people heard you were smoking bath salts, <laughs> it becomes this thing like, like, um, like snorting nutmeg. You right. Know, people, it is, you are actually snorting nutmeg. So snorting, snorting something like bath salts doesn't seem like that out of the ordinary. And I can just imagine <laughs> that like some teenagers or some adolescents somewhere are trying to actually s- like snort potpourri bath salts. Totally. From- <laughs> totally. Um, well, so one of the other problems with the whole bath salts phenomena is that um, you'd get this foiled pouch of 500 milligrams of a random white powder. And if it contains MDPV, the active dose is 5 milligrams, mm-hmm. maybe 10. Um, and so one of the reasons they can get around, they can say this was not for human consumption, is clearly this is way too much for a person to take. Mm. So I'm not selling it for human consumption. And, but there's no ingredient listing and there's no dosage information. If it's methylone, which has also been sold as bat salts, um, if it's methylone, that's active at the, what, 150 milligram range? So it's not... It's, it's not out of the, out of the range of possibility to chop up, you know, a big, you know, one, you know, one fifth of this pow- of this package. With MDPV, if you did the same thing, you'd be awake for days and days and maybe having paranoid delusions and all sorts of problems mm-hmm. that people have reported having. So there's, there's pills and powders on the scene now. Um, what percentage of them are NDMA versus cathinone derivative? Do you know how much? Pure it's impossible to say. It's impossible uh, I mean, to I mean, say. Even with ecstasy data. I mean, getting, in terms. I mean, not even in terms of the testing of ecstasy data. Gets they. It's not like you know, fifty percent is MDMA and the rest is. I would say that it, um, I, I haven't looked recently. Um, there are still samples coming in from the U.S. that contain nothing but MDMA. Oh, okay. Um, that um, that's still around. Uh, and if you look from there's a similar organization in Switzerland uh, in Zurich called Streetwork. And ecstasy data shares a lot of their information. And there are pressed pills with 150 milligrams of MDMA. Wow. And that's the only active ingredient. Wow. Um, <laughs> they, they that's been, a nice dose. Yeah. Where? Have been putting out warnings about too strong of ecstasy. Because these are, these are stronger than the 80 milligrams than you'd be used to. So when you, uh, the test kits that are street level, they're basically just testing to see whether or not it's MDMA. Whether or not it contains some MDMA. It's some MDMA. And now, uh, this was a, a couple of years ago, but I remember that you were also involved in putting together a test kit for levamisole and cocaine. Yeah, unfortunately that hasn't really gone anywhere, partially because the, the kit itself is much more, is, is, it's more involved than the it's one. It's harder to, it's a little bit more steps. There's more steps, and the substances come a lot more from bio from biochemistry as opposed to we need alkaline phosphatase and and a bunch of other and random substrates and other stuff that require um, biochemistry knowledge more than random organic chemistry knowledge, and it's um, and the getting some of the supplies has been harder. Levamisole is um, what is it again? Baby stool softener? Uh, Levamisole is a deworming medication. Oh, it's a deworming medication, it, right. It, um, it was prescribed to cancer patients um, to because it um, it does this thing with white blood cells. Um, and uh, anyway, it was prescribed to cancer patients for, for a good reason. And about one-tenth of them got this basically complete crash of their immune, immune system. system. Right. And... Um, and we're not sure. still used in veterinary medicine. Farms, like, likely 
like a ranch would have it on hand for mm-hmm. their cattle. Uh, and there are several theories as to why it started showing up in the cocaine supply. Um, it's, it's, it's either a cutting agent, it makes the cocaine look shinier and cleaner, or... It, it looks like cocaine. Yeah, it looks like cocaine. It looks like cocaine. So unlike some of the other cuts you might have, um, it's hard to tell just with an eyeball mm-hmm. that it's cut. It transfers, like when you make cocaine into crack, um, Levamisole goes right along with that process. You mm. get Levamisole free base. Um, and so unlike with a lot of the other cuts, which you can purify your cocaine by turning mm-hmm. it into crack and then turning it back into cocaine, you can't do that with Levamisole. Right. And the, and the problem with Levamisole is, like you said, it causes this uh, immune system malfunction where white blood cells aren't doing their job properly. And right. you, you're, you're, you become susceptible to viruses and colds, just almost like an autoimmune crash. Yeah, and um, it, the symptoms tend to be like dark spots in your extremities, like your skin starts to necrotize, actually, it starts to die. Uh, and as well as, you know, wounds that won't heal, uh, lung infections that don't go away, that sort of problem. It, it's really interesting, though, that sorts of people that um, are reporting the symptoms tends to be middle-aged or older African American women. Uh, I mean, the men do. I mean, men get the problems. White people get the problems. Who are it's, using it's not, cocaine or but crack? It, um, both, um, both crack users and cocaine users. People who are using daily, though. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. If you are a weekend warrior and you use a teener every couple weekends or something, and what's a teener? A sixteenth <laughs> of an ounce. Right? Um, so if you use a half an eight ball every couple weekends. You might want to check in with yourself once in a while. Mm-hmm. If you are using that uh, uh, half an eight ball a week, you're likely starting to run to where you're going to run into these problems. Right. Um, and if you're using more than that, you'll you're really running a chance of, of having this problem. The cancer patients that got it, uh, that got these problems, was about one tenth of them, and they were getting 150 milligrams of levamisole prescribed to them. Mm-hmm. That works out to um, like you would have that much in, let's see what is it? Well, we were seeing 30% levamisole. Wow. 10, 10 to 30% levamisole in street samples. That's a high, that's what you call stepping, stepping on your shit. <laughs> 30%. The FBI has seen it as much as 50% in the bricks they're getting. Oh my God. That's horrible. So it's coming from the source countries. Uh, it's not being stepped on by your neighborhood dealer or even their dealer. It's that way from the time that it's packaged. In Colombia to be transported here. Mm. Another and reason. Another, another reason to hate the narco lords is they don't give you pure product. They put a lot of money into R and D to make this happen. They're yeah. making their own levamisole now Ugh. to do this, um, and it seems to be. Um, I mean, they are saving money. They're they're securing their own supplies of levamisole, um, but they're they are saving some money on this. Um, I don't know if there are other reasons. There are lots of conspiracy theories that, you know, the drug warriors are putting this there to, um, oh, right. the to CIA, make the drug more dangerous. The CIA is doing this to give to give all the cocaine users a spontaneous <clears throat> immune system. Not, not, I mean, not, not to give them... <laughs> the conspiracy theory isn't so much to make the cocaine users sick and die. The, the conspiracy theory is a little bit milder, which is just the more they can make drug use dangerous the fewer people will decide to do drugs. It's the whole point of the drug world. It's to make drug use dangerous. Totally. Instead of fun. But aren't dangerous <laughs> things more fun? Right? Backfire! Uh, <laughs> safety third. Um, 
Oh my goodness. Um, but like that, that is sort of the whole idea though. It's why, um, you know, drug paraphernalia is illegal because they don't want, like, why are testing kits, why are testing kits that are more involved than ours are illegal? And mm-hmm. testing kits like ours are considered drug paraphernalia in many states. And that's because they don't want you to be able to test your product. They don't want you to be able to, um, they want the drugs to be well, dangerous so you stay away from them. Who's they? Just the DEA? Um, people that write drug laws. Yeah. Which is not, not necessarily, the DEA is there to enforce the drug laws and they do some stuff, but it's the people that write drug laws. They're, um, the whole concept of the drug war is, is it a drug? Ban it. Is it, is it activity around a drug? Ban it, make it dangerous, make it unsavory, steer people away from it. Right. But with marijuana, that's sort of changed, changing. Right. And, Finally. Uh, and, uh, how, how involved were you in the, uh, Washington State 502 initiative? Um, I, so I've been on the, um, core, core group of Seattle Hempfest for 10 years. Right, right. Uh, and a lot of people here in the Seattle scene are involved with Hempfest because right. it's the big, one of the biggest in the nations and Seattle it's, has a little bit of pride around. It's easily the biggest festival yeah. of its sort in the, in the world. But, um, so I've been, and just being a drug geek and, and being active in policy and stuff, I, I know a lot of the, the players, and so I was, um, I didn't do much more besides argue with people on the internet. Uh, <laughs> Dominic uh, Holden did a lot of that. As yeah, well. he did. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, um, but I, I sort of cheerled, uh, uh, where I could and talked to the people that I could. And it was, um, it's an amazing experiment to see how this is going to play out. And that's exactly what we wanted in a lot of ways. We wanted a regulatory model. It's maybe too strict. And that's okay. <laughs> uh, because it's way better than what we had. There are already thousands of people that don't have, um, arrests in this and there, state. And there, and there is, um, there was something that happened after the law was passed. And that is, I think, all of the people who were facing possession charges in state court were just, their cases were just dropped. Um, a variety of, um, and people were just released from jail. Right? What didn't charges um people are rarely in jail for very long on, on marijuana possession charges, yeah. of course. Um but there were a couple hundred in King County that were like pending charges that were mm-hmm. just dropped. Mm-hmm. Um grow up investigations that were dropped. Um Spokane County dropped a bunch of charges. Um right after a pat they're like, Why go forward with this when it's when you know, just because they were popped for possession a month before this thing passed. Um, so they dropped all of those. That's several hundred people. Um, the Seattle Police Department recently did a sweep of a bunch of street drug dealers on the university, on the Ave and the University District. Yeah. Which is well known for people selling dime bags of weed. And <clears throat> they arrested six people who had priors and confiscated people's drugs and then turned around and said, these are personal use amounts and gave the drugs back. Yeah. They released people from jail and then gave them their drugs. Right. And said, don't be a dealer again. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty weird to me. And, um, so when, when, when we say that like the conspiracy of the people who make the drug laws want it to be dangerous and they're out to get the user, I think a, a lot of times we demonize politicians, but politicians are really just kind of following the will of the people. And if the will of the people changes, 
then like the vehemence that the politicians use in their arguments changes. Like for instance, in this last this last uh, presidential election, drug war wasn't mentioned once. No, I mean it was just off the table. Nobody wanted to touch it. It was like it was like worse than Social Security. Right. Even bringing it up would be such a just such a mess of, of a bucket of worms. It's just out of it, there's just out of the discussion because nobody has the the guts or the will anymore to prosecute this war, and I think the public is is basically fed up with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are a few people. There's still a few people banging the drum and raising the flag of um, prohibition. Do you want to name names? Anyone? Kevin's in Congress? have it. Well, I mean, no. Um, in Congress, not so much. Um, but. Um, you know, Gil Local. Kurlikowski. I'm, I'm just oh, thinking like the drugs Gil are. Gil Kurlikowski. Oh, uh, Seattle, former Seattle. Uh... Yeah, we thought we kind of thought he'd be, might be a little bit more enlightened because he was pretty good in Seattle around things like Hempfest and, and whatnot. Or, right, and they did. Um, they made uh, marijuana the lowest policing priority in well, Seattle while he well, was. You mentioned Dominic Holden, did. like um... Dominic Holden. <laughs> Dominic Holden, who uh, writes for the Stranger, which is the local Village Voice alternative weekly, and uh, he's the <clears> news <throat> editor, and he's involved in local politics and and hemp and activism and the pot laws, and I think he was probably one of the most vocal supporters of this this legislation, even when a lot of people in the hemp fest and mar- medical marijuana community were uh, anti the legalization there, bill. It was a very crazy fight between the marijuana community. Still is, still is. There are a lot of people <laughs> who are still really. Um, um, who who thought the sky was going to fall when this happened? Because there's a DUI component right. that says that if you're if you have this amount of marijuana in your system of THC in your blood mm-hmm. when you're pulled over, that's automatically a DUI. Mm-hmm. And um, and they thought that there would be checkpoints outside medical marijuana dispensaries and like that sort of like crazy like they thought there would just be this giant I have, dragnet. I have walked up, I have walked past police officers outside medical marijuana facilities, and they were basically standing there to protect the medical marijuana facility, not to arrest the users, but to protect them from people who would you know rob, rob it or violate it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, um, so we haven't seen the DUI problems that everybody foresaw. Um, we, there are some things happening in the legislature where the medical marijuana industry might get folded into the, the state licensed model. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some, which is a license, which is a license and taxation model as opposed to the medical model, which is kind of a prescription and donation like model. Co-op. Right, model. co-op yeah. model. Um, and, um, that was one of the fears was that you wouldn't have the medical marijuana stuff if, um, once they saw that you should tax, that they could tax it and get all this money. That is kind of playing out. And if you can just go into a store and buy weed, um, if anybody can without needing a, um, you know, doctor's note, driver's then, license or ID, <clears throat> then the why pre- not? Yeah, right. Yeah. You have to be 21. Um, and, it's like aspirin. I mean, if you can just go into a store and buy aspirin, why do you need to get a doctor's prescription to get aspirin and then go to a pharmacy and get aspirin? Right. Well, you can just well I mean, you don't have to be 21 to 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 get aspirin, right? I mean, it, no, no, but I mean, but we're we're talking about the the whole concept of why do you need to get a prescription for medical marijuana anymore if you could just walk into a drugstore and buy a bag of weed off the shelf? Right. In this case, it tends to it, you have to actually go to a marijuana only store. Oh, a marijuana only store, state run, like the old it's liquor store. It's not, not state run, not state run, state license. I, I say state license store where all they sell is 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 marijuana. Um, it's more like the liquor stores now. Right. Okay. So, um, like the liquor stores in Washington State now. Are privately owned, but state licensed. Mm-hmm. It'll be the same. The idea is that it'll be the roughly the same with the but recreational liquor, marijuana. But liquor stores can't start selling marijuana. No. Oh. 
Well, that's too bad. That is too bad. Because it's it's really good to get all of those things in one, <laughs> one place. And there's an interesting thing that's happening right now because a couple bars have opened up, um, like marijuana smoking rooms, like a, like a hookah room, or yeah, a, and um, and they've had their insurance pulled, um, because and uh, and emergency legislation to stop them from doing that. And I think that that kind of makes sense because marijuana and alcohol together suck. Um, like a lot of people report getting nauseous and, and, um, and they really well, they seem to of, synergistically they sort of go together. I mean, I've had, I've had bad experiences where I have been out drinking for most of the night and then come home and smoked a little bit and then just gotten violently ill. Right. Like yeah. they didn't mix, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, I can see what you're saying. Um, so I, I think that makes some sense. I, I wouldn't, um, want to encourage any people right now might think that, that would make, that'd be great. We'll go out, we'll have a couple of drinks, we'll smoke a J, we'll, um, and, and I think a lot of people are going to learn maybe that that's a bad idea. Um, we just get sloppier. Things well, I just I, get weirder. Um, and actually, if so, another friend I was with yeah. had a panic attack that night, so yeah, it was, maybe it was not a good <laughs> idea. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that, uh, and, and our, our new Mark Kleiman, who's probably, a, I mean, I would consider him one of the world's leading experts on, Drug policy and, and marijuana legalization. And Mark Kleiman so. is the state's new pot czar for overseeing the reg- regulatory. He, he heads the licensing. team that is the consultant for mm-hmm. the state on how to do this. Um, and it's not so much how to do this, but rather um, what will happen if we raise taxes to this level, or if we make regulate, you know, make regulations on growing this way. Um, what will happen to the black market? What will happen to the user market, etc. Um, and he's just basically there to run them, to make some assumptions and run some numbers and. And try to get a good idea of what will happen um, based on various policies, and then make. Rec- I don't even know if he's making recommendations versus just saying, mm-hmm. "This is what your idea will do." See, see, people, see how boring we can make pot when you get bureaucracy involved. <laughs> you become extremely boring. Uh, I, th- I think it's fascinating, but um, I was an economist. You're a policy school. wonk, right? Yeah. <laughs> So um, uh, let's let's uh, what what other topics did you want to talk about? You've been uh, listening to the podcast uh, and some of the shows that we've been doing recently. I'm sure you've got some comments about about what's going on in the in the scene. Well, I think that um, well, I wanted to um, talk about a couple things, but we um, like one. I'm we're throwing a conference uh, May 28th. Well, that's right. The right. This is the um, the the health. What is it? Club Health San Club Francisco. Health. That's it. And I was going to say Health Club. And that right. <laughs> uh, Club Health San Francisco 2013, um, which will be in San Francisco May 28th through the 30th. And May 28th, and that's you know that but when this airs, that should be just about a week away or two weeks away. Two weeks away. Um, so if you're in San Francisco, please look into it. Um, we it'll be at the Internet Continental Mark Hopkins Hotel, which is a gorgeous hotel, and we have experts from around the world coming to discuss better nightlife safety. Uh, and, and you're not using the word harm reduction, is that? There's a lot of harm reduction component to it. Oh, okay. Um, there are, the, the full title is, um, the International Conference on, uh, Nightlife Safety, Substance Use, and Related Issues. And we have people who are experts on alcohol policies in nightlife districts, people who are experts in emergency, um, medical services and, and emergency management mm-hmm. for large events. Uh, Joseph Pred from Burning Man, who does their emergency services department, is one of our keynote mm-hmm. speakers. Um, Adam Winstock from the Global Drug Survey will be presenting the global finding, the latest global 
of data at the conference. Um, and he's got over 50,000 reports now in his database on people's drug use. So we, and these are, these are, uh, uh, what, database of what? People's drug use is like surveys or? Um, he has a, there are a couple apps. There's, um, drugs meter. Um, oh, okay. And drinks meter. And there are a bunch of individual apps for various drugs and they're kind of detailed surveys where they ask you, um, how much do you use? How often do you use? Um, how much do you pay for what you use? How often have you taken a strange white powder without knowing what it is? And lots of questions like this. And then it compares your use against everybody else's use that has done this, <laughs> which is neat. It's a, it's a really, just like when the, um, when the utility district sends you your bill and says you've used, you know, right. more electricity than 75% of your neighbors, which mm -hmm. might get you to cut down on your electricity use. Right. Um, there's that big, um, Social um, pressure of, wow, I really am drinking more than most people, or I really, you know, maybe I'm not. I feel more comfortable about my <laughs> uh, drink up. <laughs> uh, but it's it's a really interesting way to simply give people an idea of how their drug use and, and alcohol use compares. compares. Right, good. Um, and and that has some really good um, public health implications to it. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Keith Still, who's um, he's an expert on crowd management. Mm -hmm. um, he's brought in as an expert witness whenever there's like trampling mm -hmm. incidences at, at clubs yeah. or festivals. Um, and, uh, and he's one of what we're really trying to show to people in North America is that there are really smart ways you can go about managing festivals and nightlife, um, from sort of engineering standpoints that, um, don't take away any of the fun mm -hmm. and maybe even encourage a lot of the fun, but, um, but reduce a lot of the things that people have always felt were like, that's just human nature and we can't do anything about it. Um, from, you know, drunk, um, policies that, that reduce drunk driving incidences to, um, policies that reduce sexual assault and alcohol related violence and, um, to, you know, right. So it's instead of turning a, instead of, you know, either banning it and saying bad, no, don't do that, or turning a blind eye to it and letting people experiment and do what they want, it's more of managing the risk and giving people the tools they need to manage the risk. And to be honest with you, I've been to, I mean, I've been around the scene for a while. I've been to Grateful Dead shows. I've been to Fish shows. I've been to, you know, Motorhead concerts. Right. I've been to Metallica concerts. I've been, I've seen mosh pits. I've seen people high on acid in mosh pits. Right. I've been high on acid in a yeah, mosh well, pit. Yeah, well, just, just <laughs> right on the edge of the mosh pit because I, you know, I, I don't get that far into the mosh pit. But, uh, uh, I'm surprised there isn't more people, I mean, that the risk is, is actually so low when right. you look at it. There's millions of people who go to these festivals every year, and you hear about maybe a handful of people. Right. And statistically, the average among a million people living in a city daily, a, a handful of those people are not going to make it for one reason or another, just right. because of accidents or, or whatever. So so the risk management and the club scene and, and the crowd scene at these festivals it's 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 almost sort of self-organized since the 60s with like the be-ins and right. you know all of that sort of the, the the peer group coming together to organize everything you know all the way up to burning man today where everything is organized by by a peer group it's you know, sort of a non-hierarchical structure except for maybe the bureau who is it the, who are the guys that run everything the engineering crew 
Uh, DPW. Yeah, DPW. <laughs> um, well, I mean, there, there's a lot of, um, I, I volunteer as a, as a ranger at Burning Man. Um, and there's a lot, it is, a, um, a lot, like you said, a lot of, uh, peer group, like peer organized. Um, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of really smart people doing this. And, um, it's one of the great things about having a very educated populace is that we have lots of people who can bring their skills to this in a volunteer capacity, um, and, and do some amazing things. And, and if, we can help them by saying, by, um, by showing, you know, best practices for how you provide emergency medical services for a temporary mass gathering. Um, then maybe not only will it affect Burning Man, but it might affect NASCAR. Right. Um, All right. Sure. I can see that they might have the same kind of problem. <laughs> uh, they do. I mean, there were, um, when I went down to California for a stakeholder meeting around, AB 74, which was their anti-rave act mm-hmm. attempt. Um, where was this? Um, the stakeholder meeting was in San Francisco that I went to. Oh, okay. Um, back in 2010, 2011, um, a person in California tried I mean, to... The rave act was basically, uh, if there's any drugs found at a venue, then the promoter and the uh, club the, owner and everybody is liable. No, so that's the that was the that was the national rave. Oh, that was the national um, rave. California um, tried to pass what was called the Anti Raves Act of 2011, and it was um, basically any event with that featured pre-recorded music that lasted more than three and a half hours um, was banned and needed to have like and you had these massive fines and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> so it was and, basically a, an anti DJ bill. Totally, and um, and. We, we went and they actually looked at various, um, fatalities and incidences from other similar sized events, like NASCAR events and whatnot, and found Soccer. that, right, and found that, um, other Daisy Carnival and other, like, massive events with tens of thousands of people didn't have really higher and higher rates of, of drug or, or drunk driving incidences than similar sized concerts or, or sporting events. And that really helped stop the momentum on that bill. And it turned out to be more of if we think this event might have uh, a higher risk of, of problems, it needs more scrutiny and more um, effort to reduce those harms, including distributing drug use information, including um, having EMTs on site, including a bunch of other really common sense things. It turned out to be a pretty good bill. Um, but, um, it was interesting to see that with all of the media sensation around, um, you know, oh my God, this 15 year old girl died at this massive event. Um, that was in, in comparison to a, a hard rock show or a sporting event of some sort, it was really was even a lower incidence of, of problems than, than we see in mainstream events. Right, and it seems like the ones that happen in clubs where kids are experimenting and having a good time are, uh, they're, the media picks up on those more than the ones where, like, say somebody, you know, is driving a little too fast and flips their car over and, you know, maybe kills a passenger in their car. That kind of stuff happens all the time. All the time. And, you know, they may be on the local news. And it may, maybe if it's like a horrible, horrible crash, get a mention on the, on the national news. Right. But like, you know, <clears throat> one person dies at a rave where there's 10,000 people. Um, you know, or one person dies 
every six months at a rave, it becomes this huge thing. Right. And uh, it's uh, like the, the scrutiny that people put on it maybe is not as as, as legitimate as it. There are a millionish MDMA users in the U.S. And that's, um, I think, a low estimate. But that's. But that's, 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 that's roughly the estimate that the government puts out and that monitoring the future and stuff like that talk about the National Household Survey and Drug Use. And, um, it's somewhere around a million. Um, and it's sort of a rolling number because the, <laughs> pardon rolling, the pun, no pun. Uh, uh, a rolling number because, you know, people drop out of using it and then new people come on. But, um, out of that million MDMA users, um, maybe a hundred, we have maybe a hundred MDMA related deaths. Point oh one percent, I think. And um, oh, oh, one. No, I say related. I mean that MDMA was found in their system. Right. It's not the cause of death. But it, they, it may not necessarily mayhem or hijinks. I'm mean, not mayhem, but hijinks or mischief or some other activity. or a combination or a bad co- combination, or a combination of drugs. drugs. Right. And it might have just been that it was meant that MDMA. They, oh, they took ecstasy. It might have turned really out to be Really, the only MDMA deaths I hear about are the ones where people uh, overhydrate. They drink too much water, and then they have these sort of... Overheating, actually. Overheating. Overheating actually tends to be the number the one, one risk. Um, partially because um, about 10% of people have a deficiency in a particular liver enzyme that helps you metabolize MDMA. And so you more or less overdose and you get the serotonin syndrome. You get too much serotonin. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. And, and you get this runaway overheating. And which is why it's always been our thing. Um, drink water. Don't drink too much because people have died from drinking mm-hmm. too much water. Kidney it's, failure, it, essentially. Yeah. You, your electrolyte balance goes way out of whack. Right. Um, and, uh, and things swell and it's horrible. And, um, partially because people think that drinking water is an antidote to, being too high. And right. their mouth gets dry. Their right. Throat, the back of their throat gets dry and they think they're drinking more water. And they sweat a lot. And, and right. even if you're sweating a ton, you only need like a water bottle an hour or so. Um, so that's, that's been our, our message for since our inception is you know, drink water, take breaks, don't overheat. But overheating is clearly the, the biggest problem. Um, and it is compounded by adulterated drugs. Um, there was that rash of deaths in Canada and Western Canada with the PMMA, um, which was this, um, which is no, <clears throat> um, which should not be distributed, should not be. And, and likely it was somebody who just started with the wrong essential oil. Um, it was a bad, it was a bad synthesis. They might have used NFL instead of Zappo mm-hmm. or something and came up and got, did all of the same steps and got PMMA. Um, and then, um, folded it into real MDMA, it seems like. Um, we don't know for sure. We never found the people that originally started all of that. Um, <clears throat> but a lot of people died. And the way they died was overheating. Um, and it was a runaway, crazy, like you had an hour or less to get cooled down. And, and by cooled down, I mean, Injected with cold saline. <laughs> oh my god! Like like uh, in Jacob's Ladder when they had to throw him in the tub of ice water and uh, that's shock actually, him out. That won't work. That'll that, kill you. It shuts down all your capillaries. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I heard <laughs> that'll kill you. <laughs> um. So have you uh seen a, a rise in like NBOM yeah molecules yeah. out there and what's going on with- since 2010? I mean, it's it's um given out on blotter. Um, it's also, like you said, like you've talked about before in nose drops and eye drops and stuff. Um, and, um, 
And you never know if somebody's complexed it or not. So is it active at one and a half milligrams or is it active at 500 milligrams? And, um, and, and which way are you taking it? Hmm. And which one is it that's on, which invome is it that you're taking? Um, but, um, like 25i does react with our testing kits, um, on blotter paper. So, um, and it reacts differently than LSD does. So you can use our testing kits to weed them out. But it seems like with the, Ease of accessibility for the inbones. There's a lot of blotter out there that has. And where can people where can people get testing kits if they're interested in dancesafe.org? Just go to dancesafe.org, and that's the best place to find all the information you need. Yeah. And um, where can people go to find more about Club Health? ClubHealthSF2013.org. Club it's also on our website. SF2013, and that's on the Dance Safe website. Yeah, we link it. It's on our main page. Um, we. Um, we, uh, we're finding, yeah, a lot of the inbomies. If you, inbomies. <laughs> I, I always say inbomies, um, inbome. Um, it's resume. funny, all the different, the different uh, lingo that people use. You never know it's how to like pronounce a, this stuff right, when you right. just read it. Um, we, um, we're seeing a lot of it. It's, um, and, and it definitely is being sold as LSD. But if you look at, um, you find really interesting things, um, offered on Twitter. <laughs> and I found this really on awesome. Twitter. Well, I, um, I, yeah, I, um, uh, there, I found a website that sold blotter and it was not, and it was artwork that was other sort, it was other impressionist artists, um, and their work, right. um, that, um, that they were showing and you could get blotter with DOC and, um, so five MEO AMT oh my God. and, um, a whole slew of other quasi-legal sub milligram dose or milligram dose, um, you know, psychedelics. And, um, but the blotter was like one centimeter square. So the bigger than oh, what right, we're right, used to right. seeing, um, which is, I think one, um, a good indicator, a good indicator. If it's not what you're used to, like normal size blotter paper, if it's bigger than normal, um, it should be suspect just like press pills should be suspect when you see them. Um, there's a thing going, there's a saying going around, uh, if it's bitter, it's a spitter. I don't really believe it. I've always felt that LSD was sort of bitter and metallic. Uh, but that's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to describe it, but yeah, it is a little metallic, almost like there's electric, like you've touched a nine volt battery to your tongue, a little electrical feel, alkaline, a little bit of loud, yeah, a little <laughs> chewing on tinfoil. Yeah, crazy. Uh, and do you know of any tastes associated with 25i, Jake? Um, N- no, because I, uh, the, the, uh, no, and, and, and the reason is, is not because it's not, you know, something that I've experimented with, but, but more so because, um, the medium in which, uh, I am familiar with it is actually the, the nasal spray. Oh, the nasal um, spray, and you don't get a, you don't get any, you don't get any kind of taste. It just, you uh, get, it's like a burning sensation in your nose or a stinging sensation. For, oh, well, of course. For, there's a, for, <laughs> I haven't done it either for um, a short period of time, and then it's. Um, uh, but 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 there's no. But you know, you don't taste it. So there's no post nasal drip or anything that you taste. Um, it's it it, it was it, it it's like bitterness. I I mean, there really isn't any kind of I I I wouldn't be able to to properly describe it, but um, it's not. It's not like uh, putting a tab in your mouth and having to keep it in there for, you know, I don't know, an hour or however long, and then tasting that, you know, metallic kind of chemically nastiness, for lack of a better word. Um, 
Because, oh, no, no, I, because... Can you imagine if 2CB was Subring Wolf? <gasps> yeah, I mean, it would... Yeah, so... so. And it's funny, you know, they, somebody, you know, uh, rock, rock Resolve, you know, we use the term medicine, and we got into a little back and forth about the term medicine, and uh, one of the things that, you know, that the, the, the chemist will tell you about neurotoxins is that they just taste bitter. You just want to spit them out immediately. If you, if you bite into a plant that's bitter, it's usually becomes, because there's maybe a toxin in it. So the body really does not want to consume these things it's sending right. you signals that say like "Ooh, bad uh right, no right. maybe not don't take any more or just a little bit <laughs> so trust those signals when you're you know when your body talks to you because uh you know that's it, it, like i said the difference between a medicine and poison is all in dosage and so you know a little bit of something may be okay and, and a fun experience but just a little bit a little much. bit too much can be a very 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 very, very unpleasant experience very scary, yeah so. And that's, that is for the sure. The best harm reduction is always to be safe with your doses and be very careful and, and, and meticulous about how you measure those doses. Well, I think also, you know, know your supply and have sampled it outside of, a you know, anonymous festival environment, um, which is hard to do when somebody sells you what is purported to be LSD, and you know what LSD is. And this is, is and why a good friend of mine, when he went to festivals, he would only buy cubensis mushrooms. Because he could look at a cubensis mushroom and go, I know that that's a cubensis mushroom. You know, right. the orange, leathery, dried cap, the white, you know, stems uh, with the graying and the blueing. Right. You can spot those, you know, anywhere in the world and go, yes, that is a cubensis mushroom. Everything else, he said, it's impossible to tell what you're taking unless, you know, maybe it's like a chunk of peyote or something. So. Right. So yeah, you know, you just have to you just have to be very keen about the way that you go about uh, finding these things and verifying that you know what you're taking. Mm-hmm. So Nathan, I think we're just about out of time, but it was really great talking with you and catching up, and we should do it again sometime. Yeah, since, I love uh, uh, just geeking out on drink culture. So. Yeah, yeah, and we can uh, <laughs> catch up on some. I know that you're uh, you're an old friend of Rama's Nam, and uh, you've been around Seattle community, and you probably got a lot of great stories. That, that go back for years and years that we haven't gotten into yet. But when we run out of drug ache material on the show, we may go back and start discussing like legendary times. That we had. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't want to be the crouch. My days. <laughs> we didn't have these fancy in bone chemicals. <laughs> yeah, back in our day, we, we had did two CT special G, and we liked it. We had to extract our DMT from root bark like primitive people. <laughs> Yeah. All right, Jake. Any closing remarks? Um, I I don't know that I have any closing remarks. Thanks, sir, for uh for joining us, everybody, and we'll see you. And all you soon. can always go to uh, dosenation.com and uh, click through Amazon or donate through PayPal. Yeah. Or like us on Facebook because that's really where uh, we're posting weekly news and uh, any interesting stuff that comes comes our way. So um, yeah, be sure to check us out in those places, and uh, we'll see you next week. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank <laughs> you.